0: Welcome to the Horror Babel Originals Podcast. The Fear Experiment Special Edition. Written by Ian Gordon. Sound design by Jennifer Gill. Narration and ambient music by Ian Gordon. Introduction In over ten years of continuous travel, I have encountered many peculiar and fascinating individuals. Usually, the most interesting encounters are those with other travellers, men and women with no particular destination, or at least no destination they care to share. I like the idea that one can spend a fleeting evening with a stranger in the middle of a foreign metropolis only to wave goodbye the following day and never hear from them again. We are merely ships that pass in the night. As I contemplate modern technology, social media, and the like, I fear the ships are becoming all too visible. The subtle nuances, silent expressions, and secrets that define us are now exposed to the prying glow of a lethargic civilization spotlight. So I looked to places where secrets still exist, hidden nooks and passageways, the world beneath the disembodied voice of the many, the past. And there, by chance, a friend and I encountered an individual so out of touch with the modern world that he could have passed for a ghost. In what could very well have been his last year on this earth, he told us of a strange and profound experiment he was party to in his youth. A cold winter's morning, February 2008, Coleti train station, Budapest, Hungary. The train bound for Sigiswara, Romania, rolled in at around 11 a.m. If memory serves, its final destination was Bucharest. The journey time was estimated at eight hours, so we were pretty sure we'd be spending the whole day on board. As well as the two of us, several others boarded. We located an empty compartment and stowed our luggage. Within ten minutes, the train was ready to depart. Upon doing so, the ticket lady approached us almost immediately. I'll never forget the vacant look on her face as she studied my ticket. Some five or so minutes into the journey, an elderly gentleman clutching a brown leather briefcase opened the door to our compartment. He hovered in the doorway for several seconds, before finally choosing to enter. Nodding in our direction as he entered, we responded in kind as he sat opposite us. His weathered face was chock-full of gorge-deep lines. My first thought was how unusual it was for an elderly gentleman to choose to join a pair of twenty-somethings on a train that was practically empty. It would soon be revealed, however, that we were precisely the kind of company he was looking for. The man, who I came to refer to as Mr. Gray, sat in silence as he watched the world go by outside. My friend and I were idly gossiping, mostly about the things we had seen in Hungary, and would undoubtedly see in Transylvania. Towards the end of our conversation, the man carefully opened the brown leather briefcase atop his lap and began to inspect the contents. Among a bundle of papers, written in more than one language, were a number of Soviet military orders, all of which looked weathered and tarnished rather like the man himself. He looked down at the orders, and then back up at us, whispering in a thick Russian accent, Tell me what you know of fear. The Man from Tbilisi 1920s Tbilisi, Georgia Mr. Gray grew up in Tbilisi, Georgia, in the 1920s. His father was a military figure and a great admirer of Joseph Stalin. He claimed to have been heavily brainwashed in his formative years, becoming a strong believer in the Soviet regime and communism in general. So, when he approached adulthood, his heart was inevitably set on military service. Upon reaching the age of eighteen, he relocated to the Soviet Union, specifically Moscow, He rose to prominence as a young and dedicated officer, with an increasing interest in the human condition. This he attributed to his commanding officer's interest in experimental psychology. Throughout the Second World War, Mr. Gray worked as a practising psychologist in a Russian laboratory on the outskirts of Moscow. There, he and his commanding officer—a man whom he referred to as Mr. Red— conducted a variety of experiments on unwitting subjects, often prisoners of war, although it wasn't unusual for volunteers to arrive at the laboratory, including would-be soldiers unfit for frontline warfare. Unsurprisingly, Mr. Gray's interest in this field grew exponentially after the end of the Second World War, and almost a decade later, during the height of the Cold War, He was conducting his own experiments. Gabala, Azerbaijan, 1955 For reasons undisclosed, Mr. Gray relocated to Gabala, Azerbaijan, and established a psychological research facility with a team of seven medical practitioners the team was assembled to conduct a highly controversial and secret experiment, dubbed Project Sleep. But for those of whom were involved, it would later come to be known as Project Fear. In their search for willing subjects, villages in the neighbouring countries of Armenia, Russia, and Mr. Gray's native Georgia were systematically searched. Vague but intriguing advertisements were posted in strategic locations throughout small and often poor communities. Mr. Gray was carrying one of the advertisements in his briefcase. Written in Georgian, he read the text aloud in broken English, which, if translated, would have looked something like this on paper. Volunteers required, civil servants, medical research, well paid, support medical science. The applications poured in. Twelve candidates were selected, and subsequently invited to eligibility hearings. Of the twelve initially selected, seven were formally invited to participate in Project Sleep. The experiment was to be conducted in two stages, though candidates would only be made aware of the first. Project Sleep, Stage 1 Candidates were to be kept awake for a period of 72 hours in solitary confinement. To ensure their consciousness, candidates were under constant supervision. Alarms were triggered remotely and repeatedly if candidates appeared to be falling asleep. Periodically, at the 24th, 48th, and 72nd hours, candidates were asked to describe their Worst fear. As each period passed, three out of the seven candidates exaggerated the fear they had initially described. For example, candidate two had initially described a generic fear of crustaceans, specifically woodlice. Upon questioning at the 72nd hour, his fear was not only of woodlice, but of the possibility his closest friends and family members would eventually mutate into woodlice. The 48th hour brought about strange, dark fears for Candidates 3 and 5, fears that greatly worried the practitioners. Unsurprisingly, though, the 72nd hour instilled a heightened sense of anxiety and paranoia in all seven candidates, though it was specifically noted that Candidate 5 was said to be experiencing severe apathetic gloom. And then it was on to stage two. Even the notion of describing stage two filled Mr. Gray with visible unease. He was sweating and clutching haphazardly at tattered bits of paper. I recall with perfect clarity the moment he withdrew a handkerchief and slowly wiped his brow. His motion was pained and unsteady, but in that instant... I could have sworn his obscured mouth was grinning. Project Sleep, Stage 2 Upon completion of the 72nd hour, each candidate was permitted to sleep. In fact, they were given a sleeping agent which ensured they wouldn't be aware of what was to follow. All candidates were driven to a secret facility in the mountains somewhere outside Gabala. The team referred to it secretly as the Mansion. The sleeping candidates were strategically placed in various locations throughout the complex and were left to awaken naturally. The team allotted 24 hours for them to remain inside. The facility was locked from the outside, and metal panels were used to seal the windows no surveillance equipment was used. They would rely purely upon the candidate's statements upon release at the end of the time period. It is interesting to note that, according to Mr. Gray, there was nothing particularly unusual about the facility other than its convenient, isolated location. Results Upon completion of the twenty-fourth hour, the mansion's heavy doors were opened. There, Mr. Gray and his team discovered two emaciated candidates, numbers five and seven. Following the first sweep of the facility, the remaining candidates were nowhere to be found, though bizarre evidence to suggest they encountered unspeakable things was everywhere. Candidate five was comatose and as such was placed under supervision. Candidate 7, however, was surprisingly calm and coherent. He described an experience unlike anything any member of the team had heard of before. It began with him waking in a quiet room—one eerily similar to his bedroom at home in Armenia—and hearing strange sounds, including the fearful cries of unfamiliar voices. Approximately ten minutes elapsed before a stranger burst into his room, shouting maniacally, Uh, alluding to an insect of giant proportions pursuing him throughout dilapidated, maze-like corridors. Ready to dismiss the stranger's story as nonsense, he became aware of a distant humming or buzzing sound. Some inexplicable winged creature was on the prowl, tirelessly searching for a victim to fulfil its unknowable desires. The stranger left the room amid uncontainable shrieks and disappeared into the darkness of a gloomy corridor. The buzzing sound continued for a while, until Seven heard what he could only describe as a blood-curdling scream. Seven exited the room, only to discover thick, coarse hair strewn about the corridor— accompanied by sporadic pools of an unidentifiable viscous fluid. Mr. Grey and his team referred to the notes made during Stage One with Candidate Seven. He had repeatedly described a fear of helplessness—a fear that had remained consistent even after sleep deprivation. And so, throughout Stage Two, as he wandered throughout the mansion He continued to experience circumstances beyond his control. He described labyrinthine corridors surrounding him that seemed to grow in height as he explored them. Doors seemed to move away from him, and his attempts to open them failed. He repeatedly came upon dead ends, beyond which he heard manic voices, giving rise to the notion that the owners of those voices were being pursued. In the end, it was nothing more than blind luck that led Candidate Seven to the exit, and up until the moment the doors were opened, he had believed he was slouched against a cold brick wall rather than a set of perfectly ordinary oak doors. Mr. Gray's discoveries within the facility were both fascinating and horrifying— In what appeared to be confirmation of the presence of a large crustacean, the team discovered a giant exoskeleton, complete with a number of jointed limbs. And although it was retrieved for further analysis, it inexplicably disappeared from safe storage several days later. Puddles of coagulated blood were also discovered, supporting the idea that something malevolent had been wandering the halls— and furthermore, that someone or something had been injured. Mr. Gray looked at my friend and me with cold, vacant eyes. The experiment was a success, he said in that thick Russian accent, although now I wish it hadn't been so. Once again he reached into his briefcase and produced a bundle of papers, Further results—1956, Undisclosed Location, Azerbaijan Candidate Five spent almost six months in a coma, and had been under constant medical supervision in an undisclosed location, where the team hoped he would eventually recover. Much to their relief, he awoke on February 23rd, 1956— Several days passed before he felt well enough to discuss the events leading up to his coma. The middle-aged Azerbaijani librarian disturbed Mr. Gray and his team of practitioners with his account, so much so that all plans for subsequent experiments were abandoned. Mr. Gray recalled the librarian's unique fear, as described in Stage 1, the fear that human beings were vessels a single, greater entity – a being with one desire – to compartmentalise itself into a theoretically infinite number of finite individuals. The fear intensified as the time periods passed, with Five describing the entity as present in mammals, birds, and fish, but more worryingly, present in all human beings, living and dead, an entity that took the form of absolutely everything capable of breath in an endless attempt to escape the truth of itself as an impossibly lonely, omnipotent being. Candidate Five's conclusion, and ultimate fear, was that he too was an aspect of this faceless mass of a thing, and that in a universe of infinite possibilities— he would be forced to live every single inconceivably horrible life imaginable, from start to finish, over and over again, forever. In line with Project Sleep, deep within the walls of the mansion, this all consuming fear came alive. And as it did, almost instantaneously, Candidate Five saw through the eyes of the other candidates. He saw their fears, and lived them. He watched as they fled from untold horrors, and screamed each of their screams. His mind wandered further still, deep into the strange, half-imagined minds of the creatures made flesh by the candidates and their fears. He felt things only monsters were supposed to feel and merged them with emotions unthinkable to man. And as this hapless wandering consumed him, his mind began to collapse, almost as though the matter in which he was made was coming apart, torn asunder by the unseen forces of an exotic dimension, a place where only fear, pain, and agonizing confusion could exist. And there he stayed, for almost six months. Candidate Five addressed Mr. Gray and his team, telling them of their fates, explaining the intricate, invisible tapestry binding each and every one of them together, regurgitating memories, thoughts, hopes, and dreams from the deepest and darkest recesses of their minds. After what Mr. Gray described as almost an eternity of outpouring, the Azerbaijani librarian returned to that deep, dark coma the team had found him in following the experiment. And so, Mr. Gray's conclusion was ironic. In what was supposed to be an experiment designed to study the depths of fear, He and his team of practitioners summoned what can only be described as man's deepest fear—the fear that he one day may know himself. I asked him what he meant by that. He said simply, "'Your question is proof that we aren't quite there yet.' Mr. Grey closed his eyes and slept. As the Carpathian Mountains rolled by the compartment window, I thought about the being, and the frightening possibility that Mr. Grey himself, and even my friend and I, on a quiet train rolling through Eastern Europe, could be nothing more than aspects of an unknowable, omnipotent creature. We reached our destination. Mr. Grey remained asleep. I took his photograph. A part of me wants to visit Gabala, Azerbaijan, to seek out the old facility in the mountains nearby. Will it be there? If the experiment truly was a success, shouldn't whatever was summoned still be there?